Today's episode is sponsored by NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. NerdWallet's financial journalists use fact-based reporting for some much-needed clarity in the finance world, helping you make smarter decisions with your money. Get smarter about things like saving on travel, because spending less on airfare means more money for an extra night and maybe a fancier dinner, too. Boosting your credit score, since good credit is like a real-life cheat code. And saving for an emergency fund, because life is like a good movie. It loves a good plot twist. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast on your favorite podcast app. Future you will thank you. The Peter Schiff Show. Those of you who were worried that I wasn't going to be able to do a podcast today to talk about the stock market or the economy because I already did a podcast earlier this morning, well, you're wrong. Here I am doing my second podcast of the day. This may be an unprecedented uh, event. I don't know if I've ever recorded two podcasts in the same day. The reason I did the earlier podcast was because I wanted to address the topic of the a court in Texas, the federal court, striking down the uh, individual mandate and rendering the entire Affordable Care Act, otherwise known as Obamacare, unconstitutional. So I would encourage anybody who is interested in this topic or the Constitution to listen to that podcast in its entirety, because I dedicated the entire podcast to that topic. I knew it would take too long to really get into it, uh, to include it in today's podcast. So I did a separate podcast, so that issue would be entirely covered in one podcast, and I can focus for today's normal podcast on what's going on in the markets and the economy. Not that this ruling doesn't have implications, I think, for uh, the markets and the economy, because I think it does, and I think it has a lot of adverse political ramifications that will simply uh, enhance the ability of the Democrats to take over the government in 2020-21 and to implement a national health care scheme. But, and I touched on that topic, too, in the podcast, which I would encourage everybody to listen to if you haven't already listened to it. But let's talk about another big down Monday. As I uh, suggested when I did my podcast on Friday, uh, I'm still thinking that there is the possibility of a Black Monday type event in October 1987 event this year. And I said we were running out of Mondays because we only had three left and now one down. This again was not a crash, but the Dow did close down better than 500 points. Uh, At one point, we were down over 600 points. You know, these big drops are now becoming a recurring event. I mean, they add up, right? If we're not getting it all in one day, Although we still might. If you look at the charts, we look extremely vulnerable to a big drop. You know, I read that already we are off to the worst start for December since 1980. Uh, And so that was, you know, really the end of the last bear market, right? We had a bear market that went from 1966 to 1982. So the last time we had a December this week was at the tail end of that, you know, long term uh, secular bear market. So we could now be having that type of decline at the beginning of the next long-term secular bear market. People are still in denial. You know, the Russell 2000 uh, dropped today by better than 2%. It was down 
2.32%. We're now officially in a bear market. In the Russell 2000, we're down 21%, 18% just this quarter, uh, but now 21% since the peak earlier in the year. This is a bear market. You know, as I said, you know, Wall Street never tells you to sell when it's a bear market. They tell you to buy. There was a guy that was on Fox Business today. I was listening as I was in the chair because I was on Fox Business as well. And I'll talk about that uh, later in this podcast. But as I'm listening to the people talking, there's a guy that's talking about this bear market in the Russell 2000. And he said what I knew every analyst was going to say. He said that, well, you know, by the time you're officially in a bear market, it's too late to sell. So now you have to ride it out because we're probably near the end of the bear market. They always say this, right? Before you're down 20%, they say it's just a correction, right? Oh, you can't sell in a correction. It's a buying opportunity. But then the minute it's now a bear market and no longer a correction, they say, well, you can't sell now because now it's too late. The market's down too much, which means you never sell, according to uh, Wall Street. But this is the beginning of a bear market. I mean, I said that the bear market began uh, when the market was only down 5%, 7%, right? They say it's a correction. Well, what I said on this podcast is that all bear markets start off as corrections, but that doesn't mean they weren't bear markets. So we now know that when the Russell 2000 was down 5%, it was not in a correction. It was in a bear market because now we're down 21%. We're in a bear market. That means the entire 21% drop was part of the bear market. It's not like we were in a correction going down 19.9% and the whole bear market is just just 1.5% since we crossed that, that threshold that Wall Street uses to describe a bear market. No, we were in a bear market the whole time. It's just that nobody recognized it. People thought it was a correction. They were wrong. Well, they're still wrong uh, about the Dow and about the S&P. We're not technically in bear markets yet, but we are in a bear market because I don't believe we're going to stop it down less than 20%. We are going to be down more than 20%, but I don't think this is going to be a shallow bear market. I think this could be a much deeper bear market. Now, I don't believe that we're going to completely implode. I think the Fed is going to do everything it can uh, to put a floor beneath the market once it recognizes how bad the problem is, but they are still in denial, and the market is still going a lot lower technically before it can uh, you know, run into some support. But you know, this same guy on Fox Business while he was talking about how you know it's too late to sell the stock market, he was asked about recession, and he still thinks that there's no recession coming because um, I think Liz Clayman was interviewing him, and she pointed out that somebody else was on the show saying that he now thinks that we're going to have a recession in 2019, and this guy thinks the chance is zero, so clearly the guy's wrong, or I mean the chance is above zero. Uh, but he acknowledged, he said, well, you know, even if there is a recession, even if I'm wrong and, you know, we don't see any evidence of a recession, but let's say we get one, uh, it's going to be mild. Well, why should it be mild? I mean, why is this guy so sure that if we have a recession, it's going to be mild? I mean, if we have a recession, it's going to be horrific. It's going to be a depression because the recessions are proportionate to the artificial booms that precede them. And they're proportionate to the amount of stimulus that the Fed uses to create the phony boom. And we had unprecedented stimulus, zero uh, percent interest rates for six, seven, eight years, whatever. We barely raised them above that. We had three rounds of quantitative easing. We had the tarps. We had the bailouts. I mean, they threw everything, uh, including the kitchen sink, at this economy. 
And therefore, the hangover is going to be much worse. I mean, think about how bad the Great Recession was of 08 of 09, right? And think about the amount of stimulus that the Fed, you know, injected into the economy. You know, we had a, a high and then the 08, 09 was the hangover. Well, we had a lot more of the Fed's monetary heroin this time. We were high as a kite. We were much higher in this bubble than we ever got in the previous bubble, which means the the come down, right, is going to be much worse. This is a much bigger hangover that is coming as we come down from this high. So it's not going to be a mild recession. There's no shot of that. You know, this is going to be horrible. It's going to be much worse. That is the denial. You know, another guy, Charlie Gasparino was on. He was on right before me. And Charlie said, you know, and this is the market's down 600 points as he's talking. And he said, well, you know, there's just so much fear out there. That's the problem. Everybody's afraid. That's not the problem. The problem is nobody's afraid. Look at the VIX. I mean, the VIX looks like a great chart. I mean, if that's a stock, you'd want to go long. That's the volatility index. It's going much higher because we don't have enough fear yet. People are complacent that we have too much of that. People aren't smart enough to be worried. They should be worried about a bear market, but they're not. Nobody's short, which is one of the reasons that the market's going to fall so much because the shorts aren't there to cover because they're not short because people are so optimistic. And nobody wants to sell because they they, they think they're going to miss out on the, the next leg up. So everybody is holding and hoping, right? Everybody is in denial. But where people should be more fearful is not just about the the stock market, they should be fearful about the economy, about the recession that's coming, about the next financial crisis. You know, Charlie Gasparino, again, was saying that, well, you know, we got nothing to worry about like last time. He said last time the banks were in trouble, we got nothing to worry about. How's he so sure? The next financial crisis is going to be worse. Goldman Sachs hit another 52-week low today. We're down 39%, almost down 40%, and there's no bottom in sight. Believe me, the next greater recession is going to include another banking crisis, which is going to be worse than the last one. Yet the people who didn't even see the last one coming are so sure that there's not another one coming. Well, if they were so wrong before, well, isn't it, you know, possible that they're wrong again obviously they didn't understand the problem last time that's why they were blindsided by the crisis the problem is they didn't learn from their mistakes they're just as clueless now as they were back then so there isn't enough fear out there people are not selling and the market is still imploding even though they're not selling you know i also spoke about uh, the cryptocurrencies on there. In fact, they, they brought me on initially to do the bull bear about Bitcoin. I forget who the, the bull was. I was the bear. And, you know, this was the one-year anniversary of the peak. The peak happened a year ago today at almost 20,000, 19,700. We made the low for the year over the weekend. We didn't take out 4,000. We got to 3,000. We got to 3,100 maybe in was about the low 3120. I don't even think we took out 3100. And then today we had a huge rally in Bitcoin, better than a 10% rally. We got all the way up to 3590 based on bitstamp.net. Uh, as I'm recording this, we're still above 3500. So we're up about 10% on the day. And I think maybe people are somehow seeing the anniversary of the Bitcoin uh, high and thinking that, oh, this is now going to mark the low and they're rushing to get in, uh, you know, this, you know, oh yeah, this will be perfect. It's going to bottom out exactly a year from when it topped out. 
This is a sucker's rally. It's a dead count bounce. The hodlers are just as clueless about this bull market being over as Wall Street is about its own bull market. Remember, I mentioned it in another podcast. Nobody can see their own bubble. Everybody on Wall Street can see, or most people anyway, can see the crypto bubble and the Bitcoin bubble. They just don't see the bubble in their in their in stocks or in the U.S. economy. Whereas a lot of people who are buying crypto can see the bubble in the stock market or the bond market or the dollar. They just don't recognize the same characteristics in their own bubble, right? It's it, it's bubbles are in the eye of the beholder. That is the problem. Uh, you know, I'm just taking an objective look at all of these bubbles, and therefore I'm able. Uh, to to recognize them. But, you know, the one guy who can't see any of the bubbles is this guy, Brian Kelly, who is a regular on CNBC, on Fast Money all the time. You know, I think that's one of the reasons that Fast Money stopped having me on was because I was contradicting uh, this guy's constant uh, touting of Bitcoin. In fact, they, they affectionately call the guy BK, which almost sounds like Bitcoin, except K instead of a C. Uh, but this guy was nonstop cheerleader, Banging the drums, you got to buy, got to buy, not only Bitcoin, Bitcoin Cash, Ether, you name it. He was touting it on CNBC every single day. And of course, as I pointed out, nobody ever questioned his objectivity when he's running a Bitcoin fund and he has a vested interest in uh, pushing up the market because he's uh, in a fund. Of course, you know, they, they would constantly accuse me of talking my book when I told people to buy gold, even though whether or not every single person who listens to CNBC, if they followed my advice and bought gold, it wouldn't even move the needle on the gold market. It's a huge market. There's lots of liquidity. And my guy going on CNBC isn't going to influence the market. But you have a guy like Brian Kelly who is on CNBC every day, they have a big audience relative to the small size of the market. And if he's on there touting it constantly, he can move the market and he can create demand uh, that somebody can sell into. And what shocked me is when he was interviewed today on CNBC on the one-year anniversary of the Bitcoin high and the, uh, the woman interviewing him, basically said, well, you know, it must have been a really rough year for you. You know, you have a crypto fund and, you know, cryptos have done really bad this year. And his answer shocked the hell out of me. He said, well, you know, it's a two-way market. We're not always long. Sometimes we go short. And so we can make money on the short side as well as on the long side. The first time I've ever heard him mention anything about shorting cryptocurrencies. And then she asked him, well, what's your position now? You know, where are you now? No, I'm expecting him to say, well, you know, I, now I'm long, right? It's near the bottom. And he actually said, we're still short. We're short the market. This guy, the biggest crypto bull on CNBC, admitted that he short the market. Now, how did he get short? He sold. He sold into the demand that he himself created by going on CNBC every day telling people to buy. Of course, now he's saying, well, you know, you should only have five or five percent of your money in it. It's the riskiest thing you can do with your money. You know, he wasn't telling people how risky it was, that it was the riskiest thing you can do with your money when it was near the highs. And he was probably shorting it. Right. I mean, he was pumping, dumping Bitcoin. Uh, he was getting CNBC's audience to buy. And at the same time, he was shorting Bitcoin. Now, 
He should have disclosed this. They should have made him disclose, hey, by the way, I'm going short. So if you're going to go buy in Bitcoin, I'm shorting it to you. I'm shorting the futures. It was never disclosed. It was never asked. I mean, normally when you go on CNBC to talk about a stock, they'll make you say if you have a position. Do you own the stock? Are you short the stock? They never once asked Brian Kelly about whether or not he was shorting the very same cryptocurrencies that he was pumping up on CNBC and trying to convince people to buy. Uh, so, you know, maybe this guy, you know, actually saw the bubble in Bitcoin, but had a vested interest to keep on touting it because he needed buyers so that he could sell short, right? You got to have people buying the market if you want to take the other side of the trade. But, you know, if you are uh, a CNBC listener, probably not that many, you know, among my podcast, but if somebody would have been listening to CNBC and they bought Bitcoin or any of these other cryptocurrencies based on the advice, the recommendations, the constant touting of Brian Kelly, and he never disclosed his own vested interest in taking the other side of the trade. He didn't disclose that he was short what he was telling CNBC viewers to buy. And if you got suckered into this mania and you lost a lot of money, well, I think you've actually got a pretty good lawsuit against uh, against CNBC. I mean, I know they have these disclosures uh, at the end of some of the broadcasts, but I mean, nobody can read that. It zooms by very quickly. I think you have to come out. I mean, the SEC, as I said, you know, as all the losses come out, they're going to be scapegoating and finger pointing and the lawsuits are going to begin and the criminal charges. And so I don't think CNBC is out of the woods. I don't even think they noticed this, you know, that he admitted uh, that he was short because I think it was Melissa Lee who hosts uh, Fast Money. She's the one that mentioned it and she didn't even seem surprised to find out that this guy was short Bitcoin. And that he's still short and he's been touting it on her program for a year and not once did it ever come up. But another reason that people should be more worried about the economy than there are, look at the economic data that came out today. You know, we finally got some economic data for December. We got the Empire State Manufacturing Index. That came out earlier this morning before the market opened. The prior month, November, was 23.3. The consensus was for a slight decline to 21. Instead, we got half of that. We got 10.9. I think that's a 19-month low. Look at a chart. We just went over a cliff. That shows a major slowdown in manufacturing in the Empire State. I mean, Trump is talking about this manufacturing boom, this manufacturing renaissance because of his tariffs. That's not happening. The opposite of that is happening. Look at the Home Builder Sentiment Index. Believe it or not, this index was at 60 last month. And the consensus was for sentiment to improve. Why? I mean, what are these guys smoking to think that home builders are going to be more optimistic than they were a month ago in the face of all this evidence that the housing market is slowing down. So the consensus was for the index to improve to 61. Instead, everybody was surprised that it collapsed to 56. That's like a three and a half year low in this index. Now, I guess people are clinging to the fact that, well, they're still optimistic because they're above 50. They're not going to be above 50 much longer. We're going way down. In fact, this index could hit an all-time record low. We could end up taking out whatever the, the bottom was uh, in the housing bust uh, from the last bubble. We could end up going lower than that this time around. So we got all that weak economic data 
that came out before the open. And, you know, the, the market was down, I think, I don't know, 250, 260 points early on. And it rallied back. I don't know if it ever got positive or not. I mean, it might have, or I, or I don't think I noticed it positive, but it got down less than 50. And then I don't know if this is why it sold off or probably not. It probably would have sold off anyway, but it probably didn't help. And that was that Jeff Gundelock uh, was on CNBC. Now, Jeff is, again, he's the only guy that I know in the mainstream. And, of course, you know, I think he gets offended when I say he's mainstream because he's not. But, I mean, the mainstream respects him, right? They have no respect for me, right? They don't give a damn about me, right? I'm just some kook. But you can't ignore Jeff Gundelock because, I mean, Apart from being a very smart guy, he's, you know, one of the biggest asset managers out there. I mean, he's a huge guy and nobody can ignore him. So CNBC had him on for an entire hour he was on being interviewed. And that was an hour of truth. That was an hour of Jeff basically laying it out. I still think he's even more embarrassed than he lets on, although I can't necessarily speak for him. Uh, But he basically was dropping one truth bomb after another that CNBC audience does not normally hear. No one comes on and says this stuff. I mean, the only time people hear this stuff is if they listen to my podcast, because pretty much he's saying exactly what I'm saying on my podcast. Now, you know, I'm not saying that, you know, he's saying it because I said it. I mean, great minds think alike. I mean, I'm, you know, I, I think that we are looking at the same data and we are coming to similar conclusions. I mean, mine might be more bearish, but he is making the same observations that I've made about the debt and about the economy, about so many things. I mean, if you go and listen to this uh, interview on on YouTube or wherever they have it posted, I put a link to it. I mean, Zero Hedge wrote an article about his appearance, but listen to it. I mean, you know, you could be listening to me or listening to me, you know, you could be listening uh, uh, to him. Again, you know, not that I'm claiming credit for what he's saying. He could just as easily say Peter Schiff is is just, you know, saying what I'm saying. The, the reality is we're two people that actually happen to see the world uh, from a similar, if not identical perspective, from a similar perspective. It's just that, you know, he's a hell of a lot more successful than I am. I mean, he manages a lot more money than I do. And so he has some of the, the, the street credibility that I don't have. I mean, even though, you know, I predicted the last financial crisis, a lot of people just think that that was a fluke because now I've been predicting another one and it hasn't happened. Well, it's going to happen. It's going to happen worse than the last one. People forget about how much they made fun of me, you know, on CNBC. I mean, CNBC will have Jeff Gundelock on. They won't have me on, right? Because again, he's got the credibility. They can't ignore him. He's that important a person. But one thing that I, I, thought was very interesting um, was that when Jeff was describing the problem of consumer debt and the fact that we're borrowing all this money and people think that this is a sign of a great economy that consumers are spending. And he made the point that, no, it's not a sign of a strong economy because we're going into debt. And then to describe the situation to CNBC and their audience, he decided to use One of my analogies, which is something, you know, I use a lot of analogies to explain things. And I have an analogy, and Jeff Gundelock basically recited my analogy verbatim. (laughs) You know, I forget which podcast I've mentioned it. I've mentioned it several times. I've used this analogy, you know, on several occasions over the years on my podcast. You know, I might have even used it on his podcast. Not, you know, he has one. 
the, the Sherman show that I did. I forget if I used it on the Sherman show. I may have even used it on one of my three appearances on the Joe Rogan podcast. I'm really not sure, but I know 100% I've, I've used it on this podcast. In fact, I'm gonna, I'll am gonna i go over the analogy now. Many of you listening to it will remember it. If anybody can f- remember you know, which podcast it was, you know, the name of the podcast, the number, uh, you know, put it up on, uh, make a comment on, on, on YouTube, for example, and I'll notice it or other people can thumbs up it and it'll go to the top and, but I'll notice it because I forget, I know I've done it more than once even, but my analogy had to do with if you ran into a couple of your friends, or let's say you haven't seen some guy since high school and all of a sudden 20 years, you run into this guy and you say, Hey, how you doing? And the guy tells you, oh, well, you know, I just took out a mortgage on my, a third mortgage on my house. I, I maxed out my credit cards. I, you know, I, I, I pulled all the money out of my retirement account. You know, I'm in debt up to my eyeballs and I'm, you know, would, would your conclusion be that this guy is doing great because he's got all this debt? He's taken out all these loans. You know, would you conclude that this guy is very prosperous? On the other hand, you meet another one of your old friends you haven't seen, and you say, hey, how's it going? Oh, I've maxed out my 401k plans. I paid off all my credit card debt. You know, I fully funded my IRA. You know, I, I paid off my mortgage, right? Well, that sounds like a guy who's doing good. He's getting out of debt, right? He's paying off his liabilities. So taking on a lot of debt is a sign of problems in the economy, Reducing your debt and accumulating assets is a sign of prosperity and wealth, right? And so I use this exact analogy, and Gundelach said the exact same thing using almost the same particular examples that I've used when I do this analogy. And so I thought it was interesting because here CNBC won't even let me on, yet they give Gundelach an hour to basically say the same type of stuff that I would say if they would have let me on, but they won't have me on. And Gundelach probably, you know, he, he doesn't even want to go on that often, you know, because he's got better things to do than, than waste his time on CNBC. And they're like so excited that they can get Jeff Gundelach on. Uh, and they had gave him an entire hour, you know, saying basically what I've been saying for years. And, and they basically kicked me off their air for saying this stuff. They're saying, oh, we can't let Peter Schiff come on and, and, and say stuff like this. But then they, you know, they roll out the red carpet. They let Gundelach. And not only is he saying the same stuff that they won't let me say, he actually uses my exact analogy. Now, I mean, it would have been nice if he actually credited me. Not that I need the credit. I mean, I, you know, I'm not, you know, petty about it. I mean, I'm fine. I mean, I'm happy to have people use my analogies. I mean, it just shows that that I'm, I'm, I'm having an, an impact. And I, I'm flattered that a guy like Gundelach would actually use analogy uh, that I created to explain a concept to people so that they understand it. But the reason I would have liked it if Jeff mentioned, hey, Peter Schiff uses this analogy, uh, is I would have liked the producers on CNBC to hear that. I would have liked Jeff Gundelach to throw that in their faces that the one guy that gets this that they used to have on, they won't have him on anymore. And by the way, you know, people like Jeff Gundelach still listen to me. You know, because CNBC won't have me on. The people can still listen to me. They can listen to my podcast and they can still get this information. Or, you know, they can tune into Fox Business, right? Because Fox Business is having me on. So there are some networks that will have me on. But I would have liked it if Jeff threw it in their face so CNBC would know that, hey, I, I, I kind of got on their air in a roundabout way indirectly because Jeff Gundelach went out there and he used a classic Peter Schiff analogy to explain a bunch of bullshit because the people that normally come on CNBC, they don't get it. They, they think spending is great. They think the U.S. economy is booming. They don't have a clue. 
when we come out with these you know, retail sales numbers and people are spending money. Yeah, they're spending borrowed money. And the fact that people say, oh, these trade deficits don't matter. Of course they matter because we are accumulating liabilities. We are going into debt to consume. That is not what a wealthy economy does. Wealthy economies produce surpluses and they, they invest their surpluses. They accumulate assets. They don't accumulate liabilities. That's what the United States is doing. We're accumulating liabilities. That is a problem. Jeff Gundelach understands that problem. And yeah, he's using my analogy to explain it to the CNBC audience. Although, you know, I don't even know if it's my analogy because I might have heard it from my dad. I can't even tell because I had so many conversations with my father over the years that I don't even know if I should take credit for inventing the analogy. You know, I might have, you know, embellished it and I, I'm not even sure. So maybe Jeff Dunlock doesn't even realize that he got it from me. Who knows, right? He, he's heard it, doesn't even remember, but it made sense to him and he repeated it. But I know he got, he must have got it from me because no one else says it. But me, he didn't get it from my dad because my dad died three years ago. And, you know, Jeff Gundelhoff didn't have any conversations uh, with my father. Getting back to the stock market, though, all of the usual subjects, I already mentioned Goldman Sachs making new lows. Uh, but the market was just getting beat up. No place to hide except the gold stocks. There were some pretty big moves up today in the gold stocks. I saw Yamada was up 8.5% on the day. Uh, that was the biggest mover that I happened to notice. But, you know, gold was only up about 7 bucks. It's not like we took out the highs. We're still below 12.50, I think about 12.45. The U.S. dollar was down today. It wasn't down substantially, but it was down. Again, it should be down a lot more if people understood what was going on, but they're still in denial. And of course, we got the Fed, and I'm going to get into that in, in a bit. The Fed is going to be making its rate hike decision on uh, Wednesday, and that is likely supporting the dollar. And it's probably got a lid on gold, although once we get that hike or out of the way, uh, then that lid might might be gone. But all the usual suspects were getting beat up. Amazon uh, got clobbered pretty good today. It was down four and a quarter percent, slipping deeper into this official bear market territory. It's now down about 25 percent from its peak. But probably the news that story that came out today was part of the reason that Amazon was so weak. They announced that they were going to be looking to eliminate uh, crap products. C-R-A-P is an anachronism. Apparently, it's internal to Amazon. I never heard of it. But what it stands for is can't realize a profit. Crap. And those are products that they sell at a loss. Now, I know about that because I buy products from Amazon and I know they're losing money. And, you know, last time I mentioned that, some people thought, well, you know, they're probably making money. You know, maybe they're shipping it to you from Puerto Rico. No, they're not. This stuff is not coming from Puerto Rico. Uh, and a lot of it on the shipments, you can track the order and see where they're coming from. None of this stuff is coming from Puerto Rico. It's all being shipped uh, and it's being mostly flown by plane, right, from the mainland to Puerto Rico and then delivered by truck to me. But this stuff costs a fortune. I mean, in fact, I mentioned uh, my televisions. I just noticed that another one of the TVs that I bought, right, the, the uh, Sony TVs, a second one, the screen was cracked. I didn't even notice it until they hung it up because, you know, you don't notice it until you turn it on because the light comes on. And so a second TV damaged in uh, in transit. And so I called up Amazon and they reimbursed me for the cost of that TV. Again, I'm not sending it back because it costs so much to ship it back. So they just write it off. And now that second TV, they got paid nothing for that one. And I'm pretty sure they lost even money on all the ones that didn't break because it cost them so much to get it here, right? So they said they're going to try to eliminate 
uh, these crap products. And these are products that they lose money selling, which is a lot of products. And if they do start eliminating these products, well, that's, you know, that's going to be good for their bottom line, but it's going to be bad for their stock price because the stock price is not a function of their bottom line, which is pretty small compared to their market cap. It's a function of these revenues. And a lot of the revenues are coming from the fact that they're losing money on their products. I mean, it's a great deal for a customer. I mean, I buy all this stuff. Look, I can buy a 40-pound bag of dog food on Amazon for 40 bucks, and they'll ship it to me in Puerto Rico for free. Now, what can their profit margin be? I mean, even if it's double, even if they're buying the bag of dog food for $20 and doubling the price, which I don't think they're doing. I mean, may, maybe they got a 10% markup on that you know, bag of dog food. Then they're going to ship it to Puerto Rico. It's got to cost twice 40 bucks to ship that thing to Puerto Rico, and they're charging me nothing. I mean, I get packages arriving from Amazon every day. Sometimes there's these huge boxes, and I open it up, and all we got in there is toilet paper. You know, and the boxes are enormous. They're really light. You know, you think, you know, you get this huge box coming. I think, oh, what is this? Or, what did my wife buy now? You think this is really heavy thing. And you pick it up and it's light as a feather because there's barely anything in there. But to, to, to ship a package that size, you know, they're losing money. So Amazon is saying, hey, maybe we're going to stop selling all these products where we lose money. Now, that might be re- good news for some of the other retailers who have such a hard time competing. I mean, I'm not, I might have to start driving to the local store to buy my dog food if Amazon won't ship it to me for free, I might have to actually lug it back from the the supermarket. But as long as they're willing to deliver it to my door and I don't have to lift it, you know, yeah, keep it coming. But obviously this is bad, but this might be a a day of reckoning finally for that stock and all these bubble stocks come collapsing down. In fact, but Amazon wasn't the weakest online retailer of the day. That honor goes to overstock.com. That stock was down over 20% on the day. I don't even know if there was any news or what it was, but 20% of the day, the stock is now down 85% from its peak price in January. And of course it ran up, you know, with the cryptos because, uh, you know, overstock, you know, had, you know, made inroads into blockchain and crypto, but they actually mentioned that I forget if I talked about it on the podcast, I remember I posted about it and I said what a mistake it was on my Facebook page when they did this, but they announced that they were actually going to be selling off their e-commerce business. So Overstock was going to get out of the business of selling stuff on the internet and concentrate 100% on, on, on blockchain. Now, when I saw that story, I said, well, this is going to be a disaster uh, for the company because, you know, they're selling off the actual part of the business that has value. Not that it even has value because I think they're still losing money on that business, but at least it was a business that had some kind of potential. But I also speculated that maybe they needed the money to shore up some of the losses that they had in some of their blockchain bets. But, you know, if they're getting out of the e-commerce business, if they're going to be a pure play on blockchain, if that's all they are, then is the company going to have any value whatsoever? I, I doubt it, uh, but you know it was down sharply today, and you know, uh, and it can continue to fall. But I, I don't know that this is just a function of e-commerce. Although obviously, if it's going to be selling its e-commerce business, this is not a great time to be a seller when the markets are imploding. But I want to get to the Fed because the next podcast I'm planning on doing. I mean, I don't think I'm going to do one tomorrow. <laughs> you know, I want to wait till Wednesday to do the next podcast. So we'll see if uh, something happens and I just feel compelled to record something. But we are going to get the Fed's announcement on Wednesday, right? They, they start meeting tomorrow. It's a two-day meeting and they start talking tomorrow. 
And obviously, they're going to be talking about the stock market, whether they admit it or not. And they're going to be worrying about the stock market. And what happens tomorrow might also be impactful on what they announce on Wednesday when they conclude the two-day meeting. And they're supposed to announce a rate hike. And the question is, are they going to not hike? Now, as I said on my last podcast, I think regardless I think the, the market's in trouble and the Fed is damned if it does and it damned if it doesn't. I mean, if it does hike, well, the markets keep falling because another rate hike is just a bigger problem for the market. It's already suffering as a result of rate hikes. And if they don't hike, well, then the markets are going to be thinking, gee, God, what are they worried about? It must be worse than we think if they're not hiking when everybody thought they would. And, oh, is this political? Did did Trump get to them? Oh, that that's negative for uh, the stock market. So either way, it's going to be a negative. Not that the right thing to do, like when Jeff Gundelach was was talking, I mean, he actually said that he didn't think the Fed should hike rates, which given it's the economic data, based on the way it looks at the world, it shouldn't do. But then Jeff Gundelach went on and reiterated the fact that the mistake is not hiking rates. The mistake was cutting them in the first place. The mistake was keeping them as low as they did for as long as they did. Once they did that, they were, that was it. We were done. These rate hikes mean nothing. It doesn't matter whether we hike one, one more time or two more times. We're going we're to implode. And even if they don't hike, we're still going to implode. Even if they go to zero, we're still going to implode. None of that matters at this point. But sure, given the way the Fed thinks at things, their Keynesian view of things, and the fact that they think that cutting interest rates is what helps a weak economy. The economy is weak. The economy is going into recession. I mean, the fact that they're so clueless that they're going to keep on hiking into the recession, ignoring all the warning signs. So yes, you know, given that, the Fed probably shouldn't hike on Wednesday. But given the fact that everybody expects it, they probably will. But I don't think that even if they decide not to hike, that that is necessarily going to uh, be a get-out-of-jail-free card for the market. And if they do hike and they indicate that this is probably the last hike for a while, that now they're at neutral and now they're kind of data-dependent, wait and see, and you know they're just as likely to raise is cut, you know, kind of said, look, we're, we're back. We're at neutral now. We're not on autopilot. We don't really know what we're going to do. Even if they do that, I don't think that's enough for the markets because I think kind of the markets may already expect that. I think the markets will sell off. I think the only thing that might rally the market would be no, no hike, but that might only rally it initially until all of a sudden people start to think, like I just said, oh my God, what do they know about? Or is this political? And then the decline resumes because really I think that the bear market is not going to find a bottom until the Fed is back at zero on interest rates. And it may not be there right away. And again, it's not just interest rates. If the Fed stops hiking, that's not enough. They have to stop quantitative tightening. They have to stop shrinking their balance sheet. They have to start expanding it again because we have these huge deficits. And uh, Jeff Gundelach, again, laid it on the line on CNBC, and he said, look, forget about the official deficit that was, you know, uh, $700 billion in the last fiscal year. The unofficial actual debt increased by $1.3 trillion. Jeff Gundelach said you got to look at the, the increase in the national debt, not just what they acknowledge, what they admit to officially, but you got to look at what the government is actually borrowing. And if you look at the next, you know, year, you're going to, we're going to be close to $2, $2 trillion in borrowing, even if the economy isn't in recession. 
so that the next recession, the borrowing is going to be off the charts. So if the Fed is shrinking its balance sheet at the same time that debt is skyrocketing and look at the data we're getting out japan is reducing its holdings of u.s treasuries china is reducing its holding of u.s treasuries you know saudi arabia all of our major holders outside the united states are reducing their holdings of treasuries if the federal reserve is also reducing its holding of treasuries and the u.s treasury is selling more treasuries than ever before on an order of magnitude greater than it's ever sold before, there's no way that U.S. pension funds and insurance companies can buy up the difference. It's impossible. We don't have the domestic savings. So it's just not about calling off the rate hikes. They have to call off the quantitative tightening. In fact, they have to reinstitute the next round of quantitative easing. And that is what is going to happen. But that is the beginning of the end. That is when people are going to realize that it's all been a lie, that this was a monetary roach motel that we checked into that we're never going to check out of. The, the bottom is going to fall out of the dollar. The dollar is going to get killed. Gold is going to go ballistic. There's nothing else that can happen. There's no other way that this can possibly end. And nobody is prepared for this. Nobody you know, is seeing this coming in the mainstream. You know, and there's a lot of money invested in index funds. People have piled into these funds for years and years on autopilot into this overvalued crap. All this is going to implode. All these paper gains are going to evaporate. They're going to be replaced with real losses. People are going to have to liquidate a lot of these portfolios to pay their bills that are going to be going up as their wealth is going to be going down. You know, I think, of course, my strategy is going to be vindicated in all this. I think that the people who have been investing along the lines that I have been recommending are going to be, you know, uh, vindicated. You know, I think, you know, and it's unfortunate that, you know, a lot of my clients threw in the towel in a fight that they were about to win. But the vast majority, fortunately, hung in there. Uh, and, and, and in some part, thanks to my efforts to persuade people uh, from giving up. Uh, and, you know, and so far, you know, my strategy, I mean, this quarter, it's not like we're making money in our strategy. Um, you know, I, I mean, we have some accounts that are up a little bit, some accounts that are down slightly, you know, less than 2% on the quarter. So we're barely down. And a lot of that is because of the dollar. The dollar index is up about 2% on the quarter. So even though we're seeing, you know, the Russell 2000 down 18% this quarter, forget where the NASDAQ's down 14% or 15%, the Dow down 12, 13%. Our stocks aren't really down at all. They're basically flat. The dollar is up a little bit. And the reason the dollar is up is because people still haven't connected the dots. They still expect the Fed to keep hiking rates. They still think this is a correction. They still think we're in a booming economy. All this is wrong. So the dollar is mispriced. Gold is mispriced. Stocks are mispriced. And when all of a sudden people you know, come smack you know, head on, they run into reality, everybody's going to be moving at one time. Everybody's going to have to go from the side of the boat they're on to the side of the boat that I'm on. And they're all going to try to do it at once. And so I think we're going to see a huge repricing of foreign exchange, of gold, of stocks. And I think, you know, I'm going to make a tremendous amount of money in, in this strategy. And I think that people who have been following my advice are going to uh, also be rewarded for their patience, uh, for their ability uh, to bet against a herd to get a, to bet against a bubble right to be a contrarian and and to have 
you know, the fortitude to stick it out and ignore all the noise and the manias and just invest in fundamental value and understand the fundamentals and take advantage of the fact that so many other people don't. Now, the good thing is there's still time, right? If you don't have an account with me right now, there's still time to set one up. I mean, we're still early in the bear market when it comes to U.S. financial assets, stocks and bonds and real estate. Right, even nominally, even if the Fed cuts it short, in real terms, this bear market is going to last for a decade or more, and it's going to be horrific. But we're just beginning the bull market in commodities, uh, in emerging markets, in a lot of you know foreign stocks, uh, foreign currencies, gold. So this is still early. So it's still a great time to set up an account with me if you don't already have one. If you have an account with me, this is a great time. Uh, to add to it, you know, the first step is that we're not going down, right? That our portfolio is holding up. This is not what was going on in 2008 when foreign stocks were going down more than U.S. stocks. Even as the U.S. stock market is collapsing, the U.S. dollar is only up a little bit. 2% on this quarter is not much of a flight to so-called quality when you, when you have this collapse in the stock market. So right now we're holding on. We're not going down. We're just not going up yet. But the next uh, phase is going to be the big move up. When the dollar starts, it's big move down.